Hello and a warm welcome to the Drop One Podcast. This is Jason in Brooklyn. I am coming to you a few days after returning home from the Long Island Doctor Who convention, L.I. Who, just held in 2022. This year the convention was Meglos-themed. The full name was L.I. Who Presents Meglos 2022. This was the 8th edition of the convention, which began in November 2013 on the eastern end of Long Island, New York, about 60 miles east of where I live, and this was the 7th time that I have been in attendance. Thanks to Billy Davis, the program director, I was able to present several panels this year. As I always do, I moderated a presentation called Cliffhangers! Exclamation point, where my co-hosts this year, Drew Walco and Heather McHale, Watch with me several selected cliffhangers from the classic and the new series, and we discussed which cliffhangers worked and which cliffhangers didn't work. I focused this year on trying to get at least two cliffhangers for each doctor, starting with the very first cliffhanger from Unearthly Child Part 1, and focusing on some of the more outrageous cliffhanger acting performances in Doctor Who, such as clips from Underwater Menace Part 3, and Time Lash Part 1, and of course, my favorite cliffhanger of all time, the following musical interlude. Just choosing a song. Here's one. Let's hope the piano knows it. The Ballad of the Last Ten Saloon. Play, maestro. Hold it. Boys, watch the door. And when holiday comes through there, blast him. Okay. With rings on their fingers and bells on their toes The girls come to tombstone in their high silk hose They'll dance on the tables or give you a tune For whatever's in your wallet at the last chance It's your last chance of giving It's your last chance of life It's your last chance of living And your last chance to die It's your last chance of cruising When there's no one to fight Last chance of losing and the first place you find Four days ride from the station and you're leaving at noon And your one consolation is the last chance of The three of us got through about 30 cliffhangers in a little under an hour with very enthusiastic audience participation. One of my favorite convention panels to run. Always a good chance to watch Doctor Who clips every year. I also was on three other panels. I moderated a panel comparing and contrasting the third Doctor with James Bond. I moderated a panel looking back on the first RTD era and looking ahead to the second RTD era, which is very similar to material that I've discussed here on Trap One in the past. And then at the last minute, our friend Jan, a frequent Trap One panelist, needed a pinch hitter for her Jody Whittaker slash Chris Chibnall era panel, so I was happy to moderate that on short notice. We will be talking about the Chibnall and Whittaker eras respectively in a couple of upcoming Trap One episodes. The highlight of the convention for me this year, the highlight of LIHU 2022, was being able to interview four of the convention guests. My special thanks to Irene Richard, director of media at LIHU, and fellow Doctor Who podcaster Drew Meyer, who went out of their way to help me get these interviews. So without further ado, I'm going to present interviews with the following four LIHU guests. Late. It is the right day, isn't it? Have you been waiting long? Am I really late? Yes, 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 and um, yes. Now Dad left hours ago. Whipped me for the night. Did you cook? Can you cook now? Hi, Lisa. Hey, Namak. So I'm sitting here with Bab, who played Sonia Khan on six episodes of Doctor Who during the just-concluded Chris Chibnall era. Bab, welcome to L.I. Who. Thank you, thank you. Lovely to be here. Let me ask first, is this your first Doctor Who convention? Not my first, not my first. I think this is, oh, you're going to make me count now. I'm thinking this is my fifth. Oh my goodness. Yeah, my fifth. My second, no, my third outside of the UK. Where have your other U.S. conventions been? Uh, Galley. 
Um, And um, yeah, this is my second US convention. And then I did Time Lash in Germany. So that was outside of the UK as well. So Gally, of course, is the great granddaddy of U.S. conventions. How did you find your reception there? Uh, amazing. Um, it was it was really great. I mean, for me, uh, Gally was like the first time I traveled long haul since COVID. So there was the whole kind of excitement of traveling again. Then it was my first kind of biggest convention outside of the U.K. So there were a lot of kind of like mixed emotions of being kind of anxious but nervous, you know, that kind of feeling. But as soon as I got there, you know, um, you know how it is. It's like the hotel is packed with everybody. There's a kind of uh, a very fun vibe like the night before. And I guess you get very quickly settled in. So it was it was good. It was really great. I have been to Galley several times and you were definitely swept up in a tide of humanity. Yes. But what's it like being on the main stage looking out in front of 3,000 people? It was... Again, like I feel like if I hadn't had that kind of comfort bridge, like you know, when you when you when you get into the hotel and you settle in, I think it would have been more daunting. But I guess you get to know people and you have conversations as you go along, so it didn't become so daunting. You kind of like, like you said, you're kind of welcomed with open arms, so it becomes like a big kind of family and a big troop, you know. So yeah, it was it was great, and I think this was really exciting for the fans as well because it was the first time they were all seeing each other after a little while. So there was just a whole excitement of wanting to like kind of include everyone and, and, and have fun and, and meet up. And so, yeah, it was it was great. I think that mix was great. There was a good two-year gap after COVID started where conventions were either virtual or very, very limited. So yeah. having 3,000 people at the LAX Marriott, I'm sure, was a nice welcome back. It was indeed. And, and we got to sit with, you know, I got to do a couple of roundtables where I was kind of going around and, and sitting and talking to fans on each table. And I think that, again helped us to kind of get to know each other. So then, you know, the next day you see people around in the lobby or you're talking to people, you know, when you're eating or whatever it might be. And yeah, um, it just kind of puts everyone on a level playing field, which is great. So backtracking a little bit, before we talk about Sonia, how did you get into acting in the first place? Was that always your first choice of career? Um, I think I always had a creative streak in me. Um, I used to write a lot of poetry when I was younger. Like, that was my thing. Um, It was my outlet. I have, like, stacks of poetry that I used to write, and I used to kind of uh, draw kind of, like, animations to go with the poetry. So for me, that's where my kind of creative streak started. And then it was... When I was about 16, um, I joined the National Youth Theatre in London, and I started doing shows with them and I really started to fall in love with the process of acting. And the thing I loved about it the most was understanding kind of people and behaviours and why things are the way they are. And I, I got really curious about all of that. So after I did those shows, I took it more seriously where I did, um, I carried it through in my education. And um, when I got to university, I did, I did theatre um, writing and directing because I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. I really was interested in the behind the scenes in terms of writing and directing. And at that university, I had a really good lecturer who really helped me kind of pave my way. And then I left. And after I left, I was like, no, I want to do acting. So I did another year at drama school. And that's how it all started. So, yeah. And how did you get cast as Sonia? How did I get cast as Sonia? So, as you do, you get a call from your agent, and um, I didn't really know what the show was to begin with because they don't, they can't tell you what you're necessarily going up for at the beginning. So um, it was great because I kind of went in. It was one of my bigger auditions. I've been auditioning with the BBC a lot for different shows, so it was one of my bigger auditions. And when I got in, I just felt very comfortable. I got the the, the kind of character of so I auditioned for Yaz first, and I got that kind of like it just felt like I was like oh this this is a character I could really play and um I went in like very actually funnily enough with the audition I kind of flipped my method a bit I was like I'm going to learn the lines but I'm going to really go in there and just let everything go and you know just be myself and whatnot and obviously I had to learn northern accent as well um which I'd had done a couple of plays and uh and and and, and things in, in a northern accent so that was cool Anyway, so we, um, I went to the audition and yeah, I just I had a really good feeling. And then I had a call from my agent saying, okay, they really liked you, they want to see you again. So I kind of went through the iterations of, of auditioning for Yaz. And then I didn't get Yaz, um, but they kind of called up a few weeks later and said, we would love you to have you as a sister. So it was, um, it was great. It was kind of an emotional roller coaster for a bit, but I'm glad, you know, I'm glad I was able to be a part of it after everything. So yeah. 
Something that is unusual for Doctor Who is that most companions tend to be only children. For story to, for storytelling purposes, it's easier if you have somebody who doesn't have family left behind on Earth when they're traveling in the mm. TARDIS. Yeah. So for Yaz to have a sister with whom she has an ongoing relationship over the course of the three seasons is kind of a new development for the show. Mm-hmm. Did you and Manda get to work together to work on your dynamic, how the two characters would relate? I We didn't have, like, I mean, as you know, with anything in filming, you don't necessarily have you know, all the time in the world. Like, the, you know, you want to have that time where everyone's meeting in a more relaxed situation outside offset. Didn't really have that, but I think me and Mandip clicked very well. So we had a little bit of, you know, similarities, obviously, in terms of the way we are, in terms of the way we're brought up. And, you know, all of that kind of helped bring it out. And I think we had a very um, relaxed atmosphere on set, which allowed us to kind of just bring ourselves out very quickly. And I think that all kind of showed on screen and there was a lot of banter. There was a lot of fun, you know, offset. And I think that all was just kind of brought out nicely, you know, with the characters. So, yeah. Had you been a Doctor Who fan prior to the casting? I had watched Doctor Who, but funnily enough, when I went into the audition, they did ask um, as a joke, like, how much, how much have you seen? And and I had seen it on and off, but I, I have to say I wasn't a kind of, you know, um, uh, kind of, I wasn't like watching every single episode and I had not an, a big idea of all the details of everything, but... I did start to watch it. When, when I was in the auditioning process, I had started to watch it and I started to relive the things that I knew and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, and it was great because I kind of fell in love with it in a very different way. Like, and I think that helped me when I was trying to do, you know, learn my lines and play the character and it, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, no, it was, I didn't know it. I was a fan, but not a fan, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes. My wife would call me up fan in a pejorative sense so you probably have a much better experience I'll ask you two more questions what's it like working with Jodie what's Jodie like oh she is wonderful and I am not even just saying that she is like a for for me personally so obviously we had met at the auditions before um and I was thinking to myself like oh is she gonna remember who I am because I knew I saw on the call sheet okay she's gonna be in today and um, and I remember I was sitting having my makeup done and she must have come in to have hers done sat next to me and she said hey how are you and it was just wonderful and she she's she is like a beacon of light you know she's very funny she's very relaxed she's so good at what she does she can be like that and I think it makes a real big difference when someone like myself who hasn't had that much experience on big sets and stuff like that you know she just makes you feel at ease and I think that's really great for a doctor because it just holds everybody together and it brings out the best in everyone so I, I have nothing but good words nothing but good words that's wonderful and I understand you're doing some big finish now as well I am indeed I am indeed so I did um, I think oh gosh like COVID is a blur isn't it but I think it was last year that the one that I did the 12th Doctor which got released um, I was playing Kira Sandstrom in that yes. and then there is a little bit more to come hopefully this year so yeah I mean I've, I've loved working with Big Finish you get to work with some incredible people people who I knew um, back up from university you know like how time has come around and we're all now working together so it's great um, and I do a lot of voice work so for me you know I'm very comfortable behind the mic so yeah I heard Lauren Cornelius on another podcast and I believe she mentioned having gone to drama school with you yeah yeah she we went to we went we were in Leeds together um, and you know it was it was great like um, and when I met up with her it was a good kind of eight years like our time had passed so you know when we saw each other we were like oh my god what's been going on in life and but it felt very you know back to the way it was before but yeah Lauren's Lauren is brilliant and I have worked with her recently so um, uh, I'm looking forward to doing more with her yeah well Bab we're just about out of time thank you so much and as a native New Yorker welcome to my fair city thank you it's first time visiting here and thank you for the thank you for the interview but first time visiting here and honestly um, not had any kind of like just felt very welcomed you know really really welcomed and I, I really my first time in New York and I, and I have to say it's a it's, it's going to be great like great memories to take away so yes uh, if you need a recommendation for the best pizza place in Brooklyn you know who to ask oh I will do we'll have to talk about that in detail because my husband is a big pizza fan and so am I so we yeah we're, we're, we're dying to kind of like get us like kind of without the pun but get our teeth into <laughs> into good food but yeah but no thank you so much for this really appreciate it Shown at LIHU on the Friday night before the convention properly kicked off on Saturday morning was a screening of the documentary Doctor Who Am I? This is based on the 1996 TV movie written by Matthew Jacobs and starring Paul McGann. The movie is co-directed by Vanessa Yule and it explores Doctor Who fandom and its reactions to the movie 
Unfortunately, I arrived thanks to eastbound traffic getting out of Brooklyn a little too late to see the movie on Friday night, but Matthew and Vanessa were very kind to sit down with me and have an extended interview about the documentary and their careers and their respective Doctor Who journeys. Let's get to it. I feel like I don't want to regard myself as a fan. I'd rather be the one who's worshipped. Worshipped or blamed. I think at the end of the day, probably both. I wrote The Eighth Doctor, played by Paul McGann. It's a bit of a responsibility, I think, that we have. You know, stories are powerful. Mythologies are powerful. My job was to write a TV movie pilot with the hope that it would spawn a new American Doctor Who series. The American fans, they are the diehards. There's a whole community of people that do this. They love this thing that society says you shouldn't love as much as you do. I didn't go to conventions for a very good reason. Be nice. I thought the fans would kill me. So I'm sitting now with Matthew Jacobs, the writer of the 1996 Doctor Who TV movie and many, many other movies and TV series over the years. And Vanessa Ewell. Matthew and Vanessa are behind the project Doctor Who Am I, a documentary about the 1996 TV movie and that movie's journey through fandom over the years. So we have a lot to discuss and we'll try and keep it as economical as we can. Matthew, how did you become a Doctor Who fan in the first place? I think it ran in the family, basically. Um, and my father was involved um, in Doctor Who in the 1960s. He was an actor. And so I was a fan as a child, and uh, and uh, the fandom has come and gone, and uh, um, that's how I got involved, though, because my dad was involved. And as an American fan who can sing every line to the ballad of the Last Chance Saloon from your father's episode, I can certainly relate. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you come to the TV movie in 1996? Um, I got hired because um, I was a. Um, uh, I was a good fit in terms of having worked with Paramount and having worked with, you know, Spielberg's company and having worked for BBC and having worked for Fox. So they they every and they all kind of trusted me, and I went in with a pitch just like any writer does. Um, but I came on board after they'd been trying to set it up as a as a TV show. Um, and it hadn't worked out, and then they thought, well, we'll try and do a backdoor pilot with Fox TV movies, and that's how that came about, really. I know there had been a multi-year effort to get a movie mounted with many other writers involved. Were yes. you given a lot of things that you must include in the script, or do you, did you have a lot of free reign, blank slate? I had pretty much um, a free reign, because they didn't want me taking anything from the stuff that other writers had been trying to do in terms of resurrecting it in the States. So I had pretty much a blank slate, which was good. That's wonderful. And Vanessa, before you came to this project, had you been a Doctor Who fan growing up? I had, I mean, yes. In terms of I had a nostalgic memory of it from it being on PBS in the 1980s. I was very young, but I, I remember watching it with my dad and my family um, I love the TARDIS, and just I, I have vague memories of it. And then I, I think I mentioned at the panel yesterday too. There was the song in like the '90s from KLF, like Doctor Who, hey, the, the TARDIS. TARDIS. <laughs> and I just remember being like, ah, oh, I'm so cool. I know what that is, you know. Um, so I mean that song too. Um, but really, it was just a nostalgia. That was my fandom, and it wasn't until I mean Matthew and I had been making. M- movies together before and I didn't really look at his IMDB and didn't realize that she wrote The Eighth Doctor which um, I freaked out about I thought that was so cool and so then it was I guess the TV movie that I watched again or I hadn't seen it before and I thought it was fantastic and I didn't know about the controversy surrounding it which just blew my mind um, so then I guess you know Paul McGann was my gateway back in and then I started with the new series and and I I think it's great. I'm you a really fan now. Enjoyed it. You, I you did. would be you would be reaching out to me and say, oh, oh, I love that. You know, I, I love Eccleston. He's fantastic." And and you know, because obviously, it, when Eccleston came back, it was like this sort of breath of fresh air for the whole franchise in a big way. And yeah, 
but there'd always been a romance there in the background, but the whole thing with Rose um, suddenly made the show very accessible. You know, around the world, I think it changed it in a massive way. I know for me, I grew up a fan on PBS in the 1980s right here on Long Island, and I was very, very excited for the TV movie. But I was in law school at the time, and I wasn't positive because I didn't have a television that year, and I wasn't positive I'd be able to watch it. So I had friends at home in New York, and from my undergraduate campus in Baltimore, both made me VHS tapes. Wow. And I got the tape in the mail on the same day. So I watched the movie twice. I watched the New York version with the New York commercials, and then I watched the Baltimore version with the Baltimore commercials. Wow. So I saw your movie two hours back to back on the same day. With wow. the commercials. And of course I had to sit and watch the commercials too. That's okay. That's, That's my good. memory of the TV movie. That's kind of the idea from, yes. from Fox's point of view anyway. And I've seen it multiple times over the years and I could recite large chunks of it by heart, which I will spare you right now. I promise. Okay. So how did, between the two of you, how did the documentary Doctor Who Am I come to be? Because I know you were filming it at Galley and L.I. Who. Yes. And this was the old, the famous Galley Hotel carpet, which has now mm. been replaced. <laughs> it's, it's been a while. How did that project come together? Um, well, we were. I was in, uh, visiting Matthew in, in San Francisco. We were catching up, um, and because we hadn't talked in a bit, this was in December. It was 2015, yeah. 2014. Oh, 2014. December 2014. And that's when I realized, well, yeah. Matthew was being invited to you the 50th. That was fun. That's yeah. just, you talk about that. Well, I was being invited to a rather sketchy, or, or to a sketchy convention that, that got cancelled. And then... Um, um, Sean had invited me to um, to to Gallifrey to come to a real convention that people didn't even know I was in America, so suddenly they did know because after the after the third, after the fiftieth, the, the there was reaction to Night of the Doctor. Yes, and I was involved in that reaction, and they went, "Oh, he's here." So I was. That's why I was starting to get invited, and I didn't want to go, um, but Vanessa. You know, who, who you know, we have a collaboration that goes back a ways. She was very quick to say, "Well, that's a great story." There, you know, going back to that world, and then we we got excited about the idea of a documentary, and I and I thought, "Oh, it should be called Doctor Who Am I?" Because that really that whole question of identity sits under not only um, the show, but it also sits under the way in which fans relate to it. They find their identity in some way. Um, through their relationship with each other as you know as a community and they find it as they're watching the show there's a lot of there's a lot of identifying going on in anything that's good um, you we identify and sympathize with main characters do you know what I mean well, yes but I mean it was this genuine reluctance from Matthew and I know him he's funny I always describe him as like a Ricky Gervais, Larry David type of humor. Slightly <laughs> larger, yeah. Um, so it was just an opportunity to work together again. And it was, so the conversation was in December 2014, yeah. and then we were filming by February 2015. Yeah. So it was like a love of filmmaking. We're like, yeah, we're just going to shoot right. a documentary. And then seven and a half years later it's finally done we find the story things take time to mature sometimes and we've been very lucky that that, um, the film was finished in time for last for this year um, which meant that Sci-Fi London um, were, were, were keen and then Melbourne Documentary Film Festival King. So it's got an identity outside of the Who community in, in the more general film-making community. That, and, and, and so Kaleidoscope coming on board as the UK distributors and world sales agents, and then Gravitas coming on board for American distribution um, has meant that this is, this is a show, that this is a film that's going to be open um, in cinemas, hopefully, in next year, in the 30th. So everything sort of seems to have fingers crossed, landed in the right place. And it's the sort of project that the BBC wouldn't make because the BBC would make it about the show. 
Yes. Um, and this is this is very much about this community, and it's just been so fantastic to come here to Elihu and Elihu seeing its renaissance after the pandemic and seeing you all again. I mean, the, like the other night we showed it, and wasn't it great? Yeah, it was amazing. Did you, were you able to see? I have to confess, living out in Brooklyn, it's. On paper, it's a 60-mile drive, but when you deal with traffic on Friday evening, it took me about three hours to get here, and I missed wow. missed the movie. Did not oh, get here in time, so I am you'll very have much to catch it on DVD. Absolutely. <laughs> so, in terms of distribution, I know that I heard you say at your panel yesterday that you have you've, it's already been screened theatrically in the UK. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. it's wonderful. Just finished that screening, and now it's now it's available on on Amazon UK, and you know, and all good. Blu-ray and DVD platforms in the UK, and then so it, I mean yeah. the actual release date for Blu-ray um, and DVD is November twenty eighth. Yeah. So, but then yeah, a week or so. Yeah, yeah around that, the corner. That'll be region two. Luckily, I have a region two player at home, so I'll be able to. Uh, oh, great! To yeah. watch, <laughs> and then an American distribution is coming theatrically in twenty twenty three. I believe you said. We hope. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. hope. I mean, well, it was announced in the trades in Screen International and, and a couple of other places. Um, so we're going yeah. to have our. It's with Gravitas, so we're hopefully going to have a conversation with them in the next. Probably a couple of weeks. One hopes, yeah. Um, and then we'll kind of have a better idea of what the release schedule is. And speaking of gravitas, Vanessa, you mentioned yesterday that your other filmmaking passion is diametrically <laughs> opposed to Doctor Who and very different thematically. Can you talk to us about that? Well, sure. Um, I mean, it's like my Twitter or my Doctor Who, or my Doctor Who, my Facebook is sort of split between, you know, Doctor Who fandom as well as um, sort of my personal family background, which is within the Japanese-American community. Um, my document, my thesis film was about the Japanese-American incarceration during World War II, because my mom was born on one of those camps. And actually, it was a reason why I wanted to go into filmmaking and documentary filmmaking, was to sort of learn more about my family history and this part that my family never talked about. So, yes, it's just, a, it's a... Japanese-American incarceration, civil rights sort of ideas, you know, like, never again, but, you know, there was a time when we stripped Americans of their citizenship, so you just got to be vigilant about that, but then also Doctor Who, you know, it was like... It was Somebody <laughs> suggested the, the panel yesterday. Oh, yes. The, 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 um, the, it should make, the, like, doing something... For Doctor Who, like he's going... It would be a good Doctor Who story to it go would. back to yes. that whole internment um, crisis during the Second World War. It would be a great story. As an attorney, I can tell you that we had to read the Korematsu Supreme Court decision in law school in the 1990s, and you're sitting there and you can't believe that this is actually something that nine people put together and thought was a yes. good legal decision. Yeah. Yes. And it has been overturned by the current Supreme Court, but it's been overturned in such a way as to allow it to continue happening. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the frightening thing yeah, about that. That's amazing. Yes. Um, and so it's a, it's something that you it keeps coming up in the news in terms of its relevance. So I know. So that is, that's the interesting thing, though, too. Is just like okay, I have I have the the Japanese American people who are like, wait, you're doing something on Doctor Who now, but but it's been going on for so long, and then they're also just like, oh my gosh, I have so many Doctor Who fans in my family, so they're excited to see. Your it. mother came to Newport. Uh, Newport Beach Film <laughs> Festival, and she's going to be appearing at uh, Ganif, uh, uh, Chicago Tardis. Chicago Tardis. She's going to come over. She's just like, oh, I want to go to a Doctor Who convention. <laughs> so it's like it's building out the whole thing. It's the first time, and Chicago Tardis will be the first time I've ever been in Chicago, period. So for me, it's going to be like, I'm just so excited about that. They call it the Windy City for a reason, so I dress warm. Go. Yeah, I got You brought your, your heavy coat. Yeah. And it is cold here today on Long Island. So, Matthew, not just Doctor, you have also written a Disney movie. You have written for the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Tell us about some of your other amazing projects you've done during your writing career. Um, yeah, uh, thank you. Um, I did a. I basically worked as a writer from graduating film school, and so through the late mid late eighties, I sort of was building up credits with working with people like. Um, Bernard Rose, who did, um, we did Paper House together and, and a couple of TV movies, and we did 
and I did some TV movies of my own. And, and then I started doing things like Lorna Doon, and then and then and then I got picked up to come and write Young Indy. And once I got picked up to write Young Indy, that was when I first came to America in the 90s. Through the 90s, I did quite heavy franchise pieces, you know, like Indy, Lassie, um, and I've done stuff for Jim Henson and all of those I could listen and and then eventually um, and then and then and then I started on uh, Empress New Groove and and, uh, and then I did then while that was still being written I did in I took time off to do Doctor Who and did that for like a year and then finally um, Empress New Groove comes out which was the out of the big franchise things was the most original of the projects. Um, and then in the and then in the two thousands went back to making smaller films, and that's when I really got to know Vanessa when we were making films like Your Good Friend, Bar America, or other projects. And also, I was teaching. That's how our relationship started off. And you were talking about you know, Your Good Friend, The Last Night. That is a movie about. I believe the tagline is kosher porn. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that, that's the thing that people take away from the trailer. Yeah, <laughs> no. Um, the, uh, it was, uh, um, I think the tagline, kosher porn would have been a better tagline. <laughs> the, tagline the, the tagline was, you know, um, a rabbi, a pornographer, a shared dream. Um, but, but kosher porn is much better. Thank you. I mean, th- thank you, Jason. I'm going to go right now to Tubi. Change the thing to kosher porn. Um, and we'll certainly get more hits. Yeah, it's a mocky docky drama. It's a mocky docky drama. Yeah. That's, a, that's wonderful. And I'll also point out now that Doctor Who is getting a Disney Plus distribution deal in the United States, oh, yeah, can't do kosher porn. But we'll be able to watch the TV movie and the Emperor's New Groove on the same platform back to back. That's good. Oh yes. And I'll, I think you, um, Disney Plus, are going to do a new. Young Indiana Jones. I keep on being told that because it's the thirtieth, and they're they're slowly putting that together, and they carry Lucasfilm stuff. So Disney Plus is going to be Matthew Plus pretty soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. So then the TV movie are they going to release it on Disney Plus? That we don't know right now. Different eras of Doctor Who are on different platforms between BritBox and HBO Max. So I don't quite know where the TV movie falls. I don't because I don't think it is available digitally. No, it's a, it's a hard one to get a hold of. I, I have the DVD, which is how I watched it right. most recently. Yeah. But hopefully we can get all of Matthew's work together <laughs> on Disney+. Plus. Oh, that would be nice. And Vanessa, anything else you want to pitch that's, uh, that's coming up for you? Oh, I mean, I, well, I'm just happy this documentary's over, but going to do some more work or some, some uh, films within the Japanese-American community. I have... Uh, feature that I'm writing, which is um, about, I want it to take place in Wisconsin, which is sort of like a bridesmaids meets uh, romancing the stone, Goonies adventure for um, finding Capone's lost gold. Um, But then also, there's a short that I, I, the first thing that I ever wrote uh, when Matthew was my professor, it was a short film about 9-11, because I was in New York for 9-11, but it's sort of told through this uh, a breakup relationship. It's a short. I, I just rediscovered it, and it's actually. I feel like I'm. It's been long enough, and I'm ready as a filmmaker to sort of tell this. I'm confident to tell this story in a way. It's like yes. a visual poetry of heartbreak. Yeah. So the Japanese internment camps, 9/11, <laughs> and a time travel comedy. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Matthew, Vanessa, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for this. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jason. Looking forward to hearing you. And that interview was proceeding with an excerpt from the Doctor Who Am I trailer, which was also shown at LI Who before the Matthew and Vanessa panel on the Saturday morning. That was before I conducted the interview with them on the Sunday. The movie is going to get a theatrical release shortly in the United States. You can find the full trailer on YouTube. I played the first uh, 45 or 50 seconds of that. My next interview really does not lend himself to an audio clip because he does not speak on Doctor Who. 
but you have seen him on the show inside various monster costumes dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times since 2006. Very generous with his time to talk to me, was the man behind the Cybermen and the Daleks and many, many other monsters, John Davy. So I'm here with John Davy, and John, I believe I read online that you have now played monsters or background characters in 50 episodes of the revived Doctor Who series? Yes, that's correct. Um, I've been very lucky that uh, I've been working on the show for 18 years. Uh, rewind back to 2004, where I had a audition to be one of the Cybermen. At the time, I didn't know that's what it was for. And we spent a day with 50 guys in the BBC studios in Landaff doing various movement exercises with the choreographer Elsa Burke. At uh, the end of the day, they then said, well, this has been an audition to be the Cybermen on Doctor Who. And being a huge Doctor Who fan as a child, I was so excited. They also said, by the way, you're not allowed to tell anyone because it's all top secret. So I waited at home with my fingers crossed and then eventually went to Millennium Effects' studios, Neil Gorton's company, where we tried on the suit. And if the proverbial suit fit, then we had the job. <laughs> um, we did the four episodes uh, the, with David Tennant in series two, and I thought, wow, that's an amazing experience. I'm so happy and so privileged to be on the show. Fast forward 18 years later, and The Power of the Doctor is actually the 50th episode that I've been in. Um, so, yeah, a blink of an eye and 18 years and 50 episodes and I think it's 30-plus different creatures and characters that I've played has uh, has really been a fantastic experience. And I've got a partial list here, courtesy of your business card. You've been, uh, I'm going to use my American accent, I apologize. That's fine. Daleks, Ood, Cybermen, Ghost, Clockwork, Droid, Whisperman, Unit, Heavenly Host, that was, I think, from Voyage of the Damned, Vigil, Cleric, Hath, Winder, Jadoon, Dream Crab. Did you ever imagine you would be a Dream Crab when you were a child? Oh yeah, that was that was my goal in life. <laughs> Space Corpse, Drone, Pandorica, Cyberman, Memory Police, Shansheath. They were the David Bradley-voiced vultures from the Sarah Jane Adventures, I think. That's correct. And the, and the Dark Horde. So that's an incredible array. And you've now done more Doctor Who episodes than Peter Capaldi did or than Jodie Whittaker did. True. However, they're the Doctors. They could do one episode and it's, uh, it's you know. But, um, but yeah, I've, I've been very fortunate. And um, as long as I lay off uh, the cookies, I can keep <laughs> squeezing back into the costumes. Um, not only have I been on the show, but I've been very fortunate to have been involved with lots of the live events. So the first one was in 2010. It was a show called Doctor Who Live which was a big arena traveling show uh, in the UK. And that was hosted by Nigel Planer, who played a character called Vorgensen, the son of Vorg, for obviously the classic Doctor Who people can, uh, can get that reference. Carnival of Monsters. Exactly. And he was a traveling showman, and then he had a minimizer that would minimize the monsters, and then he can bring them out and wow, wow the public with them. Uh, so that was fantastic. That was pretty much two months of rehearsals and touring, and um, I really got a feel for doing live events. Whereas, uh, obviously, working on the TV show is fantastic, but it's very stop and start, and then you wait a year to see what you have done. Um, if you're in an arena with 4,000 people, uh, you know, performing as one of the creatures, you just get that immediate reaction, which is, which is cool. I then did the Doctor Who Proms 2013, and then 2014, 2015, went to Australia, New Zealand, doing the Symphonic Spectacular uh, with Peter Davison, oh, who, wow. who was hosting the show. Um, and, yeah, well, I think one of the biggest moments, you know, to be involved um, with the brand of Doctor Who was being in a, an arena in Brisbane with nearly 10,000 people watching the show. And I was dressed as the Jadoon captain, and I marched in from the front of house and they switched the camera on, which they had big screens, and then they just saw me as a Jadoon monster, and then it was just this enormous roar 
from 10,000 people. And uh, I now understand rock stars and why they're so addicted to performing. It was that that was that kick, that one drug that I'm like, oh, wow. oh my goodness, I just want this more and more. <laughs> so in the old days, those costumes would have been all latex and rubber. And I've heard stories told from the monster artists in 1970s and 80s, Doctor, especially under the hot TV lights and television center. You would take off your Sea Devil outfit in 1984. You'd have gallons of sweat in the bottom of your boots. What's it like physically being inside these costumes now? Well, they're probably still just as hot. Um, the, the first Cybermen we did, they were made from fiberglass. Uh, so they were very heavy and we had a big, thick rubber undersuit. Um, but as time has gone on and technologies for materials have advanced, the latest Cybermen were uh, much lighter, much thinner plastic. Um, however, it is, it is still hot work, but fortunately in Wales, uh, generally the weather is not that hot. <laughs> so, um, so if we're not in the studio, if we're outside, it's, uh, it's very good to try and keep cool. How did you get into performing to begin with? Uh, kind of by accident. Most things in my life have kind of been ac uh, by accident. Um, so my normal job as such is a cinematographer and stills photographer. And at the time, um, I was involved in sh shooting lots of music promo videos, um, mostly stop-motion animation. Uh, and then between jobs, I just started doing little bits of background TV work and then I think probably the second or the third job was the audition for the Cybermen. So my understanding of movement working in the animation industry kind of lent itself to, uh, to what I'm doing. Um, yeah, also as well, I haven't actually ever qualified in anything in my entire life. Um, I'm not, uh, not very academic. Um, I'm fairly dyslexic as well, which makes traditional learning quite easy. Uh, however, I, I generally think I guess I'm good at problem solving, so if there's something I need to learn, I'll just do it on my own steam and then work as hard as possible to kind of get up to speed with the other people. Do you have a favourite monster that you play out of your whole Doctor Who menagerie? I would say, oh, that's tricky. My favourite thing that I did was probably the headless Cyberman in the Pandorica Opens. Yes. Um, which the, the whole scene was shot with an actor with one arm, but they didn't get the reveal of the Cyberman coming around the corner and picking up the head and putting it on the body. So I turned up for a day, uh, got into this very odd-looking Cyberman costume, and then with a green morph suit underneath over my head and my arm and the magic of television, they really... Uh, deleted those uh, parts of my body. <laughs> and you had mentioned growing up as a Doctor Who fan. Which era of the show was your era when you were a child? Uh, it would have been Tom Baker's. Um, my very earliest memories were of um, um, Talons and, and the Hand of Fear. Um, and uh, watching that and being scared as a child. Interestingly, though, when you go back to look at all the remastered stuff, um, it, it didn't doesn't have quite the same impact as when you're a small child watching it on a very bad quality black and white television that we had at the time. Yes. So it, in some ways it's trying, you know, trying to make the image better kind of detracts somewhat from your initial experiences. Yeah, some of those costumes in the 70s are not done any favors by high definition television. No, no, exactly. Keep keep it grungy and your mind will fill in the blanks. But you would have been sitting there potentially watching Earthshock in 1982 or Warriors of the Deep in 1984. Did you ever look at the Cybermen and Sea Devil and say one day I'm going to be in those costumes? Um no, that was that was totally off of my radar. I, to be fair, when I left school, I spent 10 years just not knowing what I wanted to do, doing various jobs. One thing that was actually quite inspirational was that Dave Prowse that played Darth Vader grew up in my home city. My dad was actually at school with him at the time. Oh, wow. So it, it, that, just that little thing just kind of made it slightly attainable. It's like, well... This guy who grew up where we grew up managed to be this iconic thing. So 
maybe that subconsciously was playing in the back of my mind and then you know obviously it led on to me doing everything that I've did done and I should point out you're in good company as David Prowse was a monster on Doctor Who in the early 70s in the time monster he played the Minotaur that's correct yeah so there's some um, some strange kind of synergy going on there you know uh, controlling my destiny maybe and I see from your IMDb, you're also getting into directing, is that right? Yes. Well, uh, like I said, I've um, been involved shooting music promos um, for bands such as uh, Radiohead, uh, The Killers, Scissor Sisters, um, uh, Father John Misty, Run the Jewels, and Cat Stevens. Um, so I've... I've directed very um, small portions of that as well and also I've made a whole load of my own short films as well so um, I think I think I'm heading in that direction uh, maybe you know I might be getting a bit too old to be sweaty and in a suit I'd rather be just sat in a director's chair much easier to sit than it is to lumber around in a fiberglass cyber costume exactly yes John Davy, thank you so much for talking with us really appreciate this okay you're welcome thank you the guard said you were here. Guard? We can't let you roam about wherever you want to. I were under arrest. Oh, no. How did you pilot the rocket, Doctor? I don't think we've met, have we? Uh, Zoe? Doctor John Smith, isn't it? John? <clears throat> John? Oh. Oh, oh, yes. Um. And what do you do here, Zoe? I'm an astrophysicist, pure mathematics major. With honours. Oh, I am impressed. And I'm delighted to be joined by Wendy Padbury, who played Zoe on Doctor Who in 1968 and 1969, and whose connection to the program has extended far, far beyond that. Wendy, thank you very much for sitting down with me. You're very welcome. I'll start off by telling you that in the summer of 1985, my mother took me to Spain for a 10-day bus tour as a vacation. It was my very first time out of the United States. I was 11 years old. And for a 10-day trip, I brought one book with me. The, the novelization of the War Games, which was a 10-part story. I figured I could read one chapter a day, and I underestimated how much I liked to read. So I pretty much finished the book before the plane even took off <laughs> at JFK Airport. But it was also the very first time in my life that I ever kept a diary. So my father told me before I left, he says, you need to keep a diary because you'll forget this stuff 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. So in my diary, I page what I wrote, the cast list of the War Games. Right. So your name appears in my very first diary entry ever. Amazing. Amazing. And very wise words from your father, too, because you do. Um, you know, I've learned from experience. You certainly do forget things. You know, I, I get asked questions that I think, oh, I don't think I remember that. But there's always somebody that does. And I still journal on and off to this day, but that goes back in a straight line to you in the summer of 1985. So you have talked about Doctor Who quite a bit over the years, and we don't have a lot of time today, so I want to go through some edited highlights. We watched Doctor Who as fans as a 25, or nowadays a 45-minute show. So for us, it's a 25-minute commitment. For you, it was a full-time job. You're doing 50, 60, 70-hour weeks between rehearsals and location shooting and studio and publicity. What was Doctor Who like for you as a job for the two years that you were on the show? What was it like going to work and dealing with your castmates and the crew and everybody? It, it was wonderful. I mean, it, it, it wasn't really like a job in as much as we all got on so well. Pat Fraser and I got on really, really well. And we developed quite a, a chemistry quite quickly. And so getting up and going to work in the morning was an absolute pleasure. Uh, also, don't forget, I was 21 years old, so, you know, I, I would have no right to say that I was tired. <laughs> but um, it, was a, it was a wonderful a job, a really wonderful job. Who'd have thought that I'd be sitting here, however many years later, uh, talking about those years? It's it, been about 10 or 15 years since then. Something like that, yeah. Let's say that, yes. <laughs> But did you envision when you were cast in 68 or as you left the set for the last time after the War Games episode 10, did you envision that into the following decades, century, millennium, that you'd still be sitting here talking about the show as much as you have been? No, absolutely not. And don't forget, I was, I was 21, so I was relatively... I had done work before Doctor Who, television work, theatre work. 
Um, but I was still young, still learning, and from Pat, who was a very private man, um, I learned that you went to work, you did your job, anything over after that um, was your own personal private time. And so you didn't have to talk about any of that. So the thought of sitting and talking about Doctor Who at, at that time was just, it, it just didn't enter our minds at all. Uh, and then I was a very late starter to conventions because I was nervous that I wouldn't remember stuff. And I think it was John Nathan Turner said to me, you don't need to worry because the fans know all the answers. So if there's something you forget, they'll know. Um, so I was a very late starter, but who'd have thought? Um, and now most people can't shut me up because I, you know. But, but who'd have thought, here we are, many, many years later, still talking about it. At what point did you realize, maybe it was when you were, came back for your cameo on The Five Doctors, when did you realize this was a show that was never going to go away? I think, um, well, really, actually, from when, from the first regeneration, I mean, that was a stroke of genius to continue the program. And thank goodness that it was Patrick Troughton, because, I mean, there are, every doctor's been great and every doctor's bought different things. But if Pat hadn't worked as the doctor, we might not be sitting here talking, you know. So actually, once Pat had regenerated and it went so well, it was sort of inevitable that it was going to continue. Yes, I didn't realise so many years, yes. but, but it, it had the potential to go on forever. And here we are now, 13 or 14 doctors past Patrick Troughton. Yes, yes, I know. We're all it's together. incredible. So you then, you did work on Crossroads before Doctor Who, yeah. and you were on Emmerdale Farm, now Emmerdale after Doctor Who, and you worked with Fraser again on Emmerdale Farm, I believe. Yeah, I did. I didn't do many episodes. I did about six episodes, I think, but that was lovely. That was really lovely, actually, but we also worked on something else prior to Emmerdale, when I was having a wig fitting for a period drama. It was a one-off play called Seasons of the Year, and it was set in a house and a, a, a stately home. And it was um, the different periods of time of the people that lived in this home. And I remember sitting in a place called Wig Creations that do wigs, and I was having a wig fitted, and there were um, curtains, uh, sat in a cubicle with curtains and I heard a voice the other side of this curtain and I thought I really recognize that voice and I pulled the curtain to one side and looked and it was Fraser <laughs> and we were doing oh oh it's so lovely to see you what you're doing and then we discovered that we were both doing the same production he was playing the groom and I was playing the youngest daughter of um of the family that were living in this house in the 80, early 18 1800s. And so yeah, we worked together twice. And Fraser is here this weekend, so he's he still working together. Fraser's always here, isn't he? <laughs> he's, I think they call him the godfather of L.I. Who yes. I don't think he's missed one yet. <laughs> <laughs> and you then became a theatrical agent. And looking at the Doctor Who talent that you represented, I believe, just working from memory, Colin Baker, Nicholas Courtney, Anthony Ainley... What was it like working on the other side of the desk as an agent representing Doctor Who talent? Well, representing Doctor Who talent, they just happened to be my clients. So I was looking for other work for them, not just Doctor Who. Of course. Um, and Matt Smith, of course. Uh, I was going to come to that, yes. Yeah, was, was a, became a client after I saw him um, coming out of drama school. Um, so it was, it, it was interesting. Uh, being an agent was tough. You know, it's a tough job. Um, and I did it for 15 years, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, probably for about the first 12 years. And then I realised that I was heading towards 60, and I thought, do you know what? I think I can't give this the energy that I need to give it, and I'm 60, and I think I probably need to back out, which is what I did. Um, but it's a very interesting job, very interesting job, and tough. You know, you have to love your clients. You can't represent somebody that you don't like. You also have to love their work. Um, and then you have to... Your job, my job is to find them an, an interview. That I, can't, I can't give them a job 
that's up to the actor. But my job was to make sure that they were being seen for things. So it's a, it's a tough, it was a tough job. And you've been credited, I see online, for discovering, quote-unquote, Matt Smith. How did, yeah. you, how did you first encounter him? I used to, uh, every year, there's a, a, called the National Youth Theatre. And it's kids that come from all over the country in the UK who don't necessarily want to be actors, but they, bring, they, they choose, they go scouting, basically, and find kids under the age of 21 that possibly will never experience anything like being on a stage and performing. Don't particularly want to be actors, but it brings them out of their comfort zone, really, and to, to give them the opportunity to do something completely different. And I always, I went there every year to look at who was coming out. Um, and most of them didn't even want to be actors, but when I went this particular year and I was mesmerised by a single person on the stage, and uh, I went to him afterwards and said, I don't know if you, I thought you were wonderful, I don't know if you want to be an actor, but I'm an agent, and if you do, and he said, I do, I do want to be an actor. And I said, well, you give me a ring, and sure enough, the next day he phoned and came in, and well, the rest is history, as they say. He was... Um, he was very special, still is, very, very special. I always say about Matt that he's got lots of features that really shouldn't go together, uh, and but they do. <laughs> he's, he's just got a wonderful face. Um, but he was so good, so good, even as a young, a young man then. And now, of course, he has been Doctor Who himself. I know. And I'd retired by then. We made sure that Matt had a good agent to go to. Um, and... Um, I got I, I, when I retired at 60 I went to live in France and then I got a phone call one day to, from someone I can't remember who saying you will never guess who the next doctor's going to be and, and then they told me it was Matt and I thought yeah that makes sense to me that makes absolute sense he'll be brilliant and I used to go to conventions and people saying no oh, no he's too young I, you know I don't we don't like the thought of because it Lots of people don't like the change, you know, until you get used to someone. And I said, give him a chance because he's got a face. You know, he hasn't got a young boyish face. He's got a really good face. So, And he's an incredible actor. So just give him a chance. And I know that it, with some people he went down really well. Some weren't so keen. But then everybody's got their favourite doctor. But um, I, I love the fact that he was Doctor Who. He brought a physicality to the role, but he also wore a bow tie in homage to Patrick Trout. He did. Which brings you back full circle almost. Yeah. I, and I know that he, I've read interviews and he said, oh, well, I spoke to him and he said he, he watched some Pats because he loved Pat as a doctor. And he, he had that quirkiness. And I was watching something only two weeks ago, um, one Sunday afternoon on telly in France. And it was an episode of of um, Matt with Karen and, uh, and there were so many little mannerisms that I noticed that I thought oh, that is so Patrick you know little thing fumbling with his fingers and just little things that um, I recognized from my day that's wonderful so as a final question what is your fondest memory from all your various Doctor Who experiences over the years I think it has to be I think it has to be the relationship and chemistry I think between Pat Fraser and I, and I think that was the reason that I left when they left, because I, I, you can't create that. And, I, I, and how do you know that with the next doctor that comes in, you're gonna have that same rapport? And so I think my, my lasting memory will be that threesome that we were able to create. And having watched the entirety of the series on lockdown last year, I can attest that the three of you were absolutely magical above and beyond the script. Watching the three of you is a true pleasure indeed. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Wendy Padbury, thank you very much for sitting with me. You're very welcome. And that was my interview with Wendy Padbury, who was very generous to sit with me very shortly before the closing ceremonies on the Sunday afternoon. And then it was time to drive back to Brooklyn and back to reality so I could get to work editing this episode for you. The executive producer of the Trap One podcast is Mark. You can find him on Twitter at Quark McMalice. This episode was co-produced by Irene Richard and Drew Meyer. 
You can find all past episodes of the Trap One podcast at trapone.podbean.com or on your podcatcher of choice. And you can find us on Twitter at trapone underscore. I'm Jason. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels. That's Dr. Who Novels. I have another podcast you might enjoy. That's the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. You can find that on anchor.fm slash Doctor Who Lit, or you can find it under my Twitter bio at Doctor Who Novels. Again, that's at Doctor Who Novels on Twitter. Another crew will be back on Trap One next week with a new panel discussing a different topic from the world of Doctor Who. Thank you, and good night now.